This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of THA periprosthetic fracture from the recon section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. THA periprosthetic fractures are a complication of a total hip prosthesis with increasing incidence as a result of increased arthroplasty procedures and high demands of elderly patients. Diagnosis can be made with plain radiographs of the affected hip and ipsilateral femur. Treatment may be non-operative or operative based on the location of the fracture, implant stability, and bone stock available. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, the incidence of intraoperative periprosthetic fractures is 3.5% of primary uncemented hip replacements and 0.4% of cemented arthroplasties. The incidence of postoperative periprosthetic fractures is 0.1% and is most common at the stem tip. Moving on to the etiology of THA periprosthetic fractures, these can be classified as intraoperative fractures or postoperative fractures of the femur and or acetabulum. In terms of prevention, know that preoperative templating reduces the risk of intraoperative fractures. Other preventative measures include adequate surgical exposure and know that special care should be used when using a cementless prosthesis in poor bone, for example in the setting of rheumatoid arthritis or osteoporosis. Now let's talk about intraoperative acetabular fractures in a bit more detail. As a quick introduction, the incidence of intraoperative acetabular fractures in the setting of cemented acetabular components is 0.2%, while the incidence of intraoperative acetabular fractures in the setting of a cementless acetabular component is 0.4%. As far as the mechanism, these fractures typically occur during acetabular component impaction. Risk factors include underreaming of greater than 2 millimeters, elliptical modular cups, osteoporosis, cementless acetabular components, dysplasia, and radiation. As far as the evaluation of THA periprosthetic fractures, know that you must determine the stability of the implant. Treatment of an intraoperative acetabular fracture can be observation alone or acetabular revision with screws versus ORIF. The indications for observation alone would be if evaluated intraoperatively and found to be stable. As far as postoperative care in these settings, consider protected weight-bearing for 8 to 12 weeks. Indications for an acetabular revision with screws versus ORIF is if the acetabulum is evaluated intraoperatively and found to be unstable. The technique can include addition of acetabular screws. You can consider upgrading to a jumbo cup. You can perform an ORIF of the acetabular fracture with revision of the acetabular component and know that if the posterior column is compromised, ORIF plus revision is the most stable construct. Finally, know that you may add bone graft from reamings if the patient has poor bone stock. As far as postoperative care in these settings, you should consider protected weight-bearing for 8 to 12 weeks. Now, let's talk about intraoperative femur fractures in a bit more detail. As a quick introduction, the incidence of intraoperative femur fractures in primary total hip arthroplasty is 0.1 to 5%. The incidence of intraoperative femur fractures in revision total hip arthroplasty is 3 to 21%. As far as the mechanism of intraoperative femur fractures, Proximal fractures usually occur with bone preparation, for example, aggressive rasping, and they can also occur with prosthetic insertion. Proximal fractures may also occur during implant insertion from dimension mismatch. Middle region fractures usually occur when excessive force is used during surgical exposure or bone preparation. Finally, distal fractures usually occur when the tip of a straight stem prosthesis impacts at the femoral bow. Risk factors for intraoperative femur fractures include impaction bone grafting, female gender, technical errors, cementless implants, osteoporosis, revision, and minimally invasive techniques, which is controversial. 
As far as the presentation of an intraoperative femur fracture, know that a change in resistance while inserting the stem should raise suspicion for a fracture. As far as the classification of an intraoperative femur fracture, the one to know is the intraoperative Vancouver classification. Considerations include location, pattern, and stability of fracture. The intraoperative Vancouver classification for femur fractures can be broken down into three types and three subtypes. Type A refers to the proximal metaphysis, type B corresponds to diaphyseal, and type C corresponds to distal to the stem tip, which is not amenable to insertion of the longest revision stem. The subtypes of the Vancouver classification is 1, 2, and 3, where 1 corresponds to cortical perforation, 2 corresponds to a non-displaced crack, and 3 corresponds to a displaced unstable fracture pattern. As far as imaging, know that intraoperative radiographs are required when there is a concern for fracture. Treatment for an intraoperative femur fracture can include stem removal, cabling, and reinsertion, which is indicated for an intraoperative longitudinal calcar split. Trochanteric fixation with wires, cables, or a claw plate is indicated for an intraoperative proximal femur fracture. Removal of the implant and insertion of a longer stem prosthesis is indicated for complete two-part fractures of the middle region. As far as the technique, know that the distal tip of the stem must bypass the distal extent of the fracture by two cortical diameters, and know that you may use cortical allograft struts for added stability. Finally, removal of the implant, internal fixation with a plate, and reinsertion of a prosthesis is indicated for distal fractures that cannot be bypassed with a long stem prosthesis. Now, let's quickly go over the Vancouver classification and treatment for intraoperative periprosthetic fractures. So again, the Vancouver classification is divided into three types and three subtypes. Type A1 is described as a cortical perforation of the proximal metaphysis, and the treatment will be bone graft alone, for example, from acetabular reaming. Type A2 is described as a non-displaced crack in the proximal metaphysis. The treatment will be cerclage wire before inserting a stem to prevent crack propagation. You can ignore the fracture if a fully porous coated stem is used, provided there is no distal propagation. Type A3 is described as a displaced unstable fracture in the proximal metaphysis. The treatment is a fully porous coated stem or tapered fluted stem. Wire slash cable slash a claw plate is used for isolated greater trochanteric fractures. Type B1 is described as a diaphyseal cortical perforation, which is usually during cement removal. Treatment will be a fully porous coated stem, which will bypass by two cortical diameters plus or minus a strut allograft. Type B2 is described as a non-displaced crack in the diaphysis from increased hoop stresses during broaching or implant placement. The treatment can be a cerclage wire if the implant is stable, a fully porous coated stem to bypass the defect if the implant is unstable, plus or minus a strut allograft. You can also use partial weight bearing and observation if detected post-op. Type B3 is described as a displaced unstable fracture of the diaphysis, usually during hip dislocation, cement removal, and or stem insertion. This will be treated with a fully porous coated stem to bypass the defect, plus or minus a strut allograft. Type C1 is described as a cortical perforation distal to the stem tip during cement removal. This will be treated with morselized bone graft, a fully porous coated stem to bypass the defect, and a strut allograft. Type C2 is described as a non-displaced fracture distal to the stem tip, and this will be treated with cerclage wire and strut allograft. Finally, type C3 is described as a displaced unstable fracture distal to the stem tip that will be treated with open reduction internal fixation. Now, let's talk about postoperative femur fracture. So as a quick introduction, the incidence of a postoperative THA periprosthetic fracture 
is 0.1 to 3% for primary cementless total hip arthroplasties. As far as the etiology of early postoperative fractures, know that a cementless prosthesis tends to fracture in the first six months and is likely caused by stress risers during reaming and broaching. Know that a wedge-fit tapered design can cause proximal fractures, and cylindrical, fully porous-coated stems tend to cause a distal split in the femoral shaft. As far as the etiology of late postoperative fractures, know that a cemented prosthesis tends to fracture later, that is, approximately five years out. These tend to fracture around the tip of the prosthesis or distal to it. Risk factors include poor bone quality, a cementless prosthesis, a compromised bone stock, and revision procedures. As far as the classification of postoperative periprosthetic femur fractures, the one to know is the postoperative Vancouver classification, and considerations include stability of the prosthesis, location of the fracture, and quality of the surrounding bone. The pros of this classification is that it's simple and validated. However, the cons include that it's often difficult to differentiate between B1 and B2 fractures based on radiographs alone. Now, let's go over the Vancouver classification and treatment for postoperative periprosthetic fractures. So type A is described as a fracture in the trochanteric region, which is commonly associated with osteolysis. Type AG or greater trochanter fractures are caused by retraction, broaching, actual implant insertion, and or previous hip screws. As far as treatment, this often requires treatment that addresses the osteolysis. For AG fractures with less than 2 centimeters of displacement, treat these patients non-operatively with partial weight-bearing and allow a fibrous union. AG fractures with greater than 2 centimeters of displacement needs an ORIF, as loss of abductor function leads to instability, and this should be treated with a trochanteric claw slash cables. Type B1 is described as a fracture around the stem or just below it, with a well-fixed stem. The treatment will be ORIF using cerclage cables and locking plates. Type B2 is described as a fracture around a stem or just below it, with a loose stem but good proximal bone stock. The treatment includes revision of the femoral component to a long porous-coated cementless stem and fixation of the fracture fragment. Treatment can also include revision of the acetabular component if indicated. Type B3 is described as fracture around the stem or just below it with proximal bone that is poor quality or severely comminuted. The treatment will be a femoral component revision with proximal femoral allograft or APC or proximal femoral replacement or a PFR. Finally, type C describes a fracture that occurs well below the prosthesis. The treatment will be ORIF with a plate where you will leave the hip and acetabular prosthesis alone. As far as the presentation of a postoperative THA periprosthetic femur fracture, these injuries often result after low-energy trauma. The treatment can be non-operative treatment with protected weight-bearing, which is indicated for non-displaced periprosthetic fractures of the greater trochanter and non-displaced fractures of the lesser trochanter. As far as the technique, know that limiting abduction may decrease the chances of displacement with greater trochanter fractures. ORIF of the greater trochanter with wires, cables, or a claw plate is indicated for a displaced periprosthetic fracture of the greater trochanter, and as far as the technique, if osteolysis is present, use cancellous allograft to fill the defects. An ORIF of the femoral shaft with a locking plate and cerclage wires are indicated for Vancouver B1 fractures and Vancouver C fractures. As far as the technique, you will typically place cerclage wires slash cables proximally and bicortical screws distal to the stem. You may use unicortical locking screws proximally, and you may add cortical strut allografts. A femoral component revision with a long stem prosthesis is indicated for Vancouver B2 fractures and some Vancouver B3 fractures. Femoral component revision with proximal femoral allograft is indicated for Vancouver B3 fractures in young patients. 
Finally, femoral component revision with proximal femoral replacement is indicated for Vancouver B3 fractures in elderly, low-demand patients. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. A 72-year-old female underwent an uncemented total hip arthroplasty. During placement of the final femoral implant, it is noted that the implant sinks much further than the final brooch. Which intraoperative complication most likely occurred, and what is the most appropriate treatment? And the choices are 1. Calcar fracture, remove the implant, cable the fracture, and insert the implant one size smaller. 2. Calcar fracture, remove the implant, cable the fracture, and insert the same implant. 3. Calcar fracture, keep the implant in place and then cable the fracture. 4. Greater trochanter fracture, remove the implant, cable the fracture, and insert the same implant. And 5. Greater trochanter fracture, keep the implant in place and then cable the fracture. The correct answer to this question is 2. Calcar fracture, remove the implant, cable the fracture, and insert the same implant. So this patient most likely sustained an intraoperative fracture of the calcar region. Proper intraoperative management of this injury should include removal of the implant, placement of cerclage wires or cables to fix and prevent propagation of the fracture, and reinsertion of the femoral implant. Occurring in approximately 4% of primary uncemented total hip arthroplasty, a proximal femoral periprosthetic fracture should be recognized and managed intraoperatively. These fractures are best stabilized with cerclage wires or cables. Several studies have demonstrated that proximal cerclage wiring is adequate to create barrel hoop stability of the proximal femur. Postoperatively, immediate full weight bearing is often permitted. Zhao et al. reviewed the risk factors for intraoperative periprosthetic femoral fractures utilizing a cementless total hip arthroplasty. They found an increased risk of fracture with advanced age, utilization of a core rail stem, the anterolateral approach, and a low metaphyseal diaphyseal index score. All fractures were treated with cerclage wire application and reinsertion of the cementless femoral implant. They concluded that this is an effective treatment as no patient required revision surgery. Warren et al. reviewed subsidence following the use of the Wagner SL uncemented revision stem for revision hip surgery with a periprosthetic fracture. They found that those patients prophylactically wired with the Dahl-Miles cables demonstrated no subsidence in comparison with those in whom heavy wire cerclage had been utilized. They concluded that the use of Dahl-Miles cables for distal cerclage and osteotomy closure for the Wagner prosthesis is reasonable. Moving on to the next question. A 77-year-old active woman with a periprosthetic infection after a left total hip undergoes the first stage of a planned two-stage reconstruction using a prosthesis with antibiotic-loaded acrylic cement. She is discharged to a nursing home with intravenous antibiotics. She falls seven weeks after the first stage procedure and sustains a fracture around the cemented antibiotic-laden prosthesis. She undergoes a hip aspiration of her affected hip, which reveals a synovial cell count of 500 cells per microliter and a negative alpha defensin. Which of the following is the most appropriate definitive treatment for this patient? And the choices are 1. Skeletal traction with suppressive antibiotics. 2. Revision cement-coated long-stemmed spacer bypassing the fracture by two cortical diameters. 3. Open reduction and internal fixation with multiple cerclage cables. 4. Reimplantation with an uncemented diaphyseal engaging femoral stem and cable augmentation. And 5. Open reduction and internal fixation with plate and screws. The correct answer to this question is 4. Reimplantation with an uncemented diaphyseal engaging femoral stem and cable augmentation. 
So this patient has undergone a successful first stage of a two-stage reconstruction for a prosthetic hip joint infection, but is fractured around her cemented antibiotic-laden prosthesis. At seven weeks, she would have completed a standard IV course of antibiotics, six weeks max, by that stage. She has evidence she cleared her infection with a negative aspiration. The most appropriate definitive treatment would be reimplantation with an uncemented diaphysial-engaging femoral stem and possible cable augmentation. Surgical treatment of periprosthetic fractures is dictated by the location of the fracture, the stability of the implant, and remaining proximal femur bone stock. When the fracture occurs around or distal to a well-fixed implant with good bone stock, the treatment of choice is ORIF. In circumstances where the femoral implant has loosened or subsided, revision to a long stem is recommended to bypass the fracture. Uncemented stems have demonstrated superior clinical results to cemented stems in most studies. Lohrer et al. compared outcomes of ORIF versus revision arthroplasty for Vancouver type B1 and C periprosthetic femoral fractures. They reported that surgery-related complications were significantly more frequent in the ORIF group and highlighted that misinterpretation of type B2 fractures with a loose implant as type B1 fractures may cause implant failure in cases of ORIF. Haddad et al. investigated the use of cortical onlay allografts with or without a plate for periprosthetic femoral fractures around well-fixed implants. They reported an excellent fracture union rate and that strut-to-host bone union was typically seen within the first year. They concluded that cortical onlay strut allografts act as biological bone plates serving both a mechanical and a biological function and thus may be used to augment fixation and healing of a periprosthetic femoral fracture. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, skeletal attraction with suppressive antibiotics is incorrect as the synovial fluid data suggests the patient has cleared her infection. Skeletal attraction with suppressive antibiotics would be an inappropriate option for definitive management. Answer 2, revision cement-coated long-stem spacer bypassing the fracture by two cortical diameters is incorrect as the synovial fluid data suggests the patient has cleared her infection and therefore revision antibiotic spacer is not indicated. Answer 3, ORIF with multiple surclage cables, and answer 5, ORIF with plates and screws are incorrect as ORIF alone would be inappropriate for this patient as she has cleared her infection. And moving on to the final question. A 78-year-old female undergoes total hip arthroplasty through a minimally invasive surgical approach. During insertion of a metaphyseal fixation stem with a cementless press fit technique, a crack in the calcar is identified. The stem is removed, two cable wires are passed around the calcar, and the same stem is reinserted. Which of the following statements is true? And the choices are 1. The patient should be advised she is at greater risk of stem subsidence and early revision. 2. Female sex is a risk factor for intraoperative calcar fracture. 3. A better outcome would be expected if a long-stem diaphyseal fixation stem had been inserted after recognition of the calcar fracture. 4. Cementless press fit technique is not a risk factor for intraoperative fracture. And five, minimally invasive surgical approach is not a risk factor for intraoperative fracture. The correct answer to this question is two, female sex is a risk factor for intraoperative calcar fracture. So of the statements listed, the only true statement is that female gender is a risk factor for intraoperative calcar fracture. Calcar fractures are a documented complication of total hip arthroplasty. Studies have shown that successful outcomes can be achieved with stem removal, cable wiring of the calcar, and reinsertion of the primary stem. Barrent et al. reviewed a series of 58 total hip arthroplasties who sustained an intraoperative calcar fracture. All were treated with cable wiring of the calcar and stem insertion. 
The authors report no femoral component subsidence or failure otherwise at 16-year follow-up. Graw et al. review a series of 46 revision total hip arthroplasties. Of the 46, 15 underwent primary total hip arthroplasty through a minimally invasive technique. The average length of time from primary total hip arthroplasty to revision was 1.4 years for the minimally invasive group versus 14.7 years for the traditional exposure total hip arthroplasties. The authors conclude minimally invasive total hip arthroplasty is a risk for early revision. Davidson et al. review intraoperative periprosthetic hip fractures. Risk factors for intraoperative periprosthetic fractures include the use of minimally invasive techniques, the use of press-fit cementless stems, revision operations, especially when a long cementless stem is used or when a short stem with impaction allografting is used, female sex, metabolic bone disease, bone diseases leading to altered morphology such as Paget's disease, and technical errors at the time of the operation. The authors summarize techniques for treatment and postulate that long-term outcome is unaffected when the intraoperative fracture is identified and treated appropriately. That's all for this review about THA periprosthetic fracture. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.